Thank you, Chad. Good morning, everybody. My name is Frank. If you're new around here, and uh, most of the time, this is what you'll see at this point in the in the sermon or in the in the uh, service, uh, is I will get up and teach the word uh, most of the time. However, last week, if you were here, you know that that wasn't one of those most of the times. We had Josh lead us last week, and. Uh, Josh is in the house, and I just want everybody to acknowledge him leading us last week and thank him, give him a little bit of love. Yeah, there you go, for those of you that were here. You have no idea how hard it is to do that, to get up in the middle of a series and to speak one time into the series and to do it, um, not just that you're speaking into the series, but you're not up here every week sort of in a rhythm. And Josh is also still somewhat new to this, and so he has to start somewhere, and, and I think he got off to a really good start. Uh, it was really uh, wonderful to be led by him last week, so we thank him. Um, so this week is our eighth week in this series that we've been doing on First Peter, preaching verse by verse through the book of First Peter. And what I want to do uh, in setting up uh, for today's message is I want to, uh, as, as I often do, give you a short review of where we've been so far in the book so that we have the context. So Peter opens this letter by telling us about the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ in our lives. Uh, as sinners, we have been separated from God by our sin. God comes along and He causes us to be born again in Christ uh, and we are now new creations into this new reality, this new truth, this genuine truth, this real truth, and to this new life in Christ. And so what we're actually talking about is salvation, eternal salvation uh, from hell. But also, besides the eternal aspect of our salvation, Peter reminds us that as Christians we are also called to be holy. And a lot of us have trouble with that word holy. It's, it's a very churchy word, and, and it, and it kind of sounds like we're supposed to be called to be perfect, and in a sense we are. And, and the only way that we can be perfect is by the power of the resurrected Christ in us. But even deeper than that, the word holy literally means to be set apart and to behave differently than you used to in your old life before Christ was in your life. So Peter talks an awful lot about putting away the former passions of your flesh and now living in Christ. And then he talks about how the fact that we are now Christians, we are also exiles in this world. It's not that we don't live in this world. In fact, we're called to live in this world. That's an important part of our existence as Christians is, is living in this world, getting along in this world. But we also feel like exiles because <clears throat> now that we're in Christ, our citizenship is actually in heaven, and so we're just sojourners going through uh, this earth, this world, this life. And so as a result, what we need is we need community with other believers. We need the church. We need the faith community. We literally need each other. And so people who say that I'm a Christian, but I really don't need the faith community, I really don't need the church, that's just wrong. You really do need other believers in your life. In fact, Peter would say that we are the new temple of God, and he would say that as such, we are called to make spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God by the power of Christ in us, by the power of His Holy Spirit leading us. And the thing that we need to understand about these spiritual sacrifices that we're making is that those spiritual sacrifices are both 
communal sacrifices. So as a community, we are making sacrifices uh, uh, to the rest of the world and, and, and spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. So a couple of weeks ago, just one minor example of that would be that Saturday that we, uh, some of us went and served the uh, Gateway um, uh, grade school, elementary school over there for that Saturday morning. So that would be one way that the community goes out. But the other way we're called to do spiritual sacrifices is as individuals. We're called to live uh, in this way. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 12, which is our thesis verse for these four weeks that we're in the midst of now. We're in the third week of a four-week little mini-series that I would title, Be Subject. And literally, it's about Peter saying, all right, there's going to be a group of people in your lives that God calls you to submit yourself to that, frankly, you're not always going to want to submit yourself to. In fact, it's going to be very, very difficult. But here's his thesis verse for that. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the unbelievers, keep your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God. And so the idea is that um, we, we are going to conduct ourselves as Christ calls us to because God's going to use that as a tool, uh, part of his arsenal to be able to call people unto himself, a people of his own choosing so that they might also become a part of the church. And two weeks ago, we talked about the very difficult subject of submitting ourselves to the governing authorities. The, the, the Greek word is the kitsis that, that Peter uses, and it's the human institutions who endeavor to actually govern us. We are actually supposed to submit ourselves to those. So the president and his administration, Congress, uh, uh, the police, the, the fire department, uh, the Department of Corrections, uh, the Department of Motor Vehicle, any of, of, of those things. And then last week, Josh talked about how we are also to submit ourselves to what I would call uh, workplace or marketplace authorities in our lives, essentially our bosses. And Josh really drilled down on the fact that, that really the, the call to, be, to, to submitting to people that we like and respect and who always make the right decision in our lives, that's easy. The challenge is that we're called, even when the person that we're called to submit to is unjust in some way, that's when the blessing comes. That's what is pleasing in God's sight when we begin to make these kinds of spiritual sacrifices. And so now today, week three of this four-week little mini-series, which I would argue, by the way, if you're here today, you've also committed to coming next week because these two weeks go together. And if you have read together, as I know that many of you, I'm sorry, read ahead, not together, but maybe you did read together, but if you've read ahead, as I know many of you have, based on the comments that I have gotten face-to-face -face and uh, through email and through texting this week, I know that many of you have read ahead. The temptation is for you to think of today's message as only being for married people and specifically for wives, and it is not, although they are the primary people that we are going to be speaking to today. I am also guessing that there may have been a, more than a few wives who were tempted to skip today's uh, uh, sermon and service or maybe just come for the music. Uh, I also believe that there are probably more than a few husbands that maybe if they read ahead for whatever reason, uh, they were tempted to come to church for maybe the first time in their lives today. Uh, and then I was, I, I, I'm guessing that there are probably a number of single people who were not only tempted to but actually did just go ahead and sleep in past the, the sermon today. Well, let me just say about this week and next. The biblical material does specifically point to wives and husbands in many ways, but it also clearly applies to those of you who are not married as well. 
It's for everybody. And let me just say this. Unfortunately, and I will explain why I use that word in just a minute. Unfortunately, I do a lot of marriage counseling, pastoral marriage counseling. And the reason I say unfortunately is because apparently there is such a need for pastoral marriage counseling. And I'm not talking about non-Christians who are married. I'm talking about Christians who have Christ in their lives and who are supposed to be living with Christ in their lives and prioritizing Christ in their lives. They need marriage counseling. And that's why I say, unfortunately, there is apparently this huge need for it. So I do a lot of marriage counseling, but there is one point in the marriage counseling that I do that is, that is very frustrating. And it's frustrating, I know, for every pastor who does this kind of ministry work because I've talked to them as well. And here's why it's frustrating. Spouses rarely, rarely enter marriage counseling in order to be shaped by God. Let me say that again. Spouses rarely come to marriage counseling, make a marriage counseling appointment, and sit with a pastor in order to be shaped by God. That's rarely why they come. Instead, they go to marriage counseling in order to get their spouse to conform. They go to marriage counseling in order to get their spouse to conform to their ideal of the perfect spouse. Now, you can see where that would be frustrating and be a tremendous problem, especially being a pastor and especially the fact that I might just bring God into the conversation at times and try to use that as a way to uh, shape you. And so it, it, is, it is really tough. And so here's what I would say to all of us this morning. Our job is to submit all of us in every context in which the Bible is taught to being shaped by God. And, if you're, and let me just say this too. Uh, if you're single and you're a Christian and you don't like one single thing that we teach over the next two weeks, it might just be the Holy Spirit whispering in your ear and saying, don't get married. Don't get married. Because this is all about preparing you singles for marriage and helping those of you who are already in marriage. So, let's jump in. Verses 1 and 2. Read them again and then we'll unpack them. Peter says, Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. We're going to just pick everything apart this morning, and, and we're going to start with that word likewise. That word likewise literally means in the same way. And so what's Peter referencing when he says in the same way, wives be subject? Number one, he's, being, he, he's referencing uh, this idea of being subject to, of submitting. In the same way we submit, or hupotasso, line up under to the government and work authorities, wives you are to submit to your husbands. And then the second reason he says likewise, in the same way, is is for the two, excuse me is for the two reasons given for the submission that we've already seen in the other two contexts these last two weeks. First, he says, you are to submit for the sake of God. It's His will for us that we would subject ourselves to these various people, and it is a gracious thing in His sight. And so it's done because it's what God wants. It what, it's what God calls us to do. And then secondly, the reason we submit is that not only is it for God, but it's also for a highly practical or pragmatic reason that we would do it. 
God uses our submission, our respecting and honoring others, even those that we don't want to respect and honor and submit to, He uses that as a tool to bring those people to His Son and to give Him glory. And so likewise, in the same way, for the same reasons, be subject. And it is interesting, all the commentators seem to take note of this and deal with this. Peter says to the wives, be subject to your own husbands. And so yeah, I'm going to go ahead and just make sure we're clear on that. You don't have to submit to someone else's husband. Unless, of course, you work for him, or he's the President of the United States, or he's a police officer who has just pulled you over, then yeah, you got to submit to him under what we studied a couple of weeks ago and last week as well. And then the very next thing that Peter does is he gives that specific pragmatic reason for the submission. He says, if your husband hasn't obeyed or isn't obeying the word, this is the best way to get him to see what's right and to see the light and to understand who God is. In other words, pestering him isn't going to help him. Needling him doesn't help. Shaming him doesn't help. Not even food and beer at this point is going to help him. And now, I know this is going to be tough. This is going to be challenging. There are some Proverbs in this book right here, the Bible, and we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, that are cross-referenced all the time in relationship to this passage in 1 Peter that I, just, I, I want to share with you and help you out with this. Okay? So here you go. Proverbs 21.9. It is better to live in a corner on the roof than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. You didn't know that was in the Bible, some of you, did you? Proverbs 27.15 A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Proverbs 21.19 It is better to live in a desert land than with an argumentative and fretful woman. Of course, we're living in Phoenix, so I'm guessing that some of us have both of those things going on in some way. So. Nervous laughter. Okay, one more. <laughs> Proverbs 12.4 an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. And that word, that Hebrew word translated brings shame literally means she who consumes him with ridicule. Okay? So now, by the way, there are Proverbs for the men too, but we're working on the wives right now, so next week we'll get to some of those. But listen, wives, ladies, I know this is frustrating. Because if he's not obeying the word in whatever context, you want him to. And so you go at him. And I get that. Now, what does it mean when Peter says he's not obeying the word? Well, actually, there's two ways he could be not obeying the word. Number one, it could mean for salvation in general. It could mean that you're married to an unbeliever. But then number two, it could also mean someone who is not obeying the Word in the sense that he's a Christian, but he's in constant, continuous sin. He's in rebellion, and he's just ignoring the Word of God. And so Peter gives us instruction here under the guidance of the Holy Spirit for how wives are to conduct themselves in this context. And it's a bit of a play on words. He says, if some do not obey the Word, they must be one without a Word. Now this gets a little bit tricky, and so we need to unpack it, but it leads to something I think truly profound. Some of us hear that and we go, wait a minute, I thought faith came by hearing. And that's true. The Bible teaches us that faith comes by hearing, by hearing the Word of God. And then there's the old saying that I hear many pastors say, that no one comes to Jesus with a wordless sermon alone. And yet it sounds like 
Peter is saying here that you can win people to Christ by never saying anything. So what does Peter really mean? Is this just some funky little ancient rhetorical device that nerds and neatniks like to pick apart and analyze, like me? And I will tell you, yes, I had fun picking apart this, but that's not the point. Here's the point. <clears throat> the assumption in this text, correctly, is that the husband has already heard the sermon. The word has been proclaimed to him. He's got the message. He's been instructed. And so what Peter is saying here is that at some point you, the wives, have to demonstrate that you believe the word yourself by living it yourself. <clears throat> Even in the book of James, James writes this, What good is it if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Faith without works is dead. So here's what Peter is saying. This husband of yours if he's retreating from the Word in any way, he must be confronted and have the Gospel proclaimed to him, yes. We're, put us down for a yes on that. He needs to hear the Gospel proclaimed to him. But, once he's heard that, the retreating husband will not be one with a verbal assault alone. And ladies, you know this inherently. You do. You do know this because you've seen this practiced so many times, everywhere. And in this context, we could say it this way. Most guys are visual learners, and so they need to see the evidence of the gospel in, in your own life. Listen, I wasn't even married yet to Jackie, and this was actually the primary strategy that God used to, in, in order to call me to Him. Uh, when Jackie and I were first getting to know each other, and then eventually we began to date each other. When it came to her Christian faith, I will tell you, I was a total jerk to her. I was ruthless. I ridiculed her. I mocked her. We would drive by her church, and North Phoenix Baptist Church. We would drive by it. I had never been there. I had never set foot on the campus, but I would mock it, and I would ridicule the church, and I would say awful things about it. I just, I just absolutely went at her. And I'll tell you what, if she had responded to me the way I would have responded to somebody doing that to me, which was badly, if she had responded badly, I would have said, see, this gospel and Jesus stuff doesn't mean a thing to you. You're all, you're all talking, you're no action. And I would have claimed victory. And I would have felt very self-righteous in my unbelief. You follow that? But instead, she would answer my questions as best that she could. She would give me the gospel here and there very truthfully and very confrontationally in, in the fact that she would present me with the bare bones truth. She would do that for me, but then she would just be quiet and live like Jesus. And man, let me say, what I saw in that was both convincing and attractive. What I saw was convicting and beautiful. And I was saved. God used it to save me. And furthermore, since my conversion, it's been the same way. More than 25 years of marriage. All of us, even the most devoted of us to our Christian faith, we have times when we struggle with and rebel against and simply disobey God's Word. And when I do, here's Jackie's approach. She gives me a little heads up. She says, listen pal, you know what you're doing and you know it's wrong. And then she just loves me and leaves me alone. She trusts the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. She doesn't press. She doesn't nitpick. She simply trusts God. And by the way, you know that this doesn't apply just to wives. 
I mean, think again of the context in which we are talking about this passage. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good works and glorify God. So this is true about all of us, but it is especially true for wives in this husband and wife relationship, this male-female relationship. Let me pause here and talk a little bit about that. Both sexes need to understand that men and women are different. Men and women are different. And, and if you deny that, you are in the extreme minority today. Not even, not even a simple minority, but you're in the extreme minority. No one of credibility denies this anymore. And, and, and when I say that men and women are different, I'm talking about neurologically, biologically, and physiologically, we are different. This idea that men and women are exactly the same and then they're socially condi conditioned and nurtured to be different, everybody of credibility has just simply walked away from that notion. John Gray says it this way, the fact that we are neurologically, biologically, and physiolog physiologically different causes us to have observable behavioral differences between the sexes in how we communicate and how we conduct ourselves. And this has been researched to death. And it is absolutely true. And so, ladies, you just need to know that when you over-pursue men verbally, which is what I know you think will work, men tend to withdraw. They just do. And I know this is hard because it's counterintuitive. And it requires patience. But it also requires something else, something bigger, something that maybe... Uh, you're just not leaning into enough, which nobody tends to lean into this enough, but here's what it requires. It requires God to work. It requires a supernatural intervention which you are not capable of, and neither is your husband. And let me close this discussion of these first two verses by reminding you that Peter's not guaranteeing that this will work. This is not a foolproof guarantee. He says so that they may be one, but what he is saying <clears throat> is what the Bible also consistently claims. God uses gentleness, humility, kindness, and compassion to draw people unto Him, not agitation. And, and listen, you can, you can hear in this message that this is not just good counsel for married people, right? I mean, it should be fairly obvious that single people should be taking note of this so that they don't have to learn this in the heat of their marriage later on. That they go into the marriage aware of these facts and everyone can benefit from the lesson that really it's not enough for us to just say that we follow Jesus. We actually have to go and follow Him in our lives. Now, Peter then takes this moment to teach something else about husbands and wives. Verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, wives, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now the first thing we need to understand about these two verses is that Peter is truly going after the hearts of both men and women here. He is writing these verses out of a deep love, concern, and compassion for all Christians. And, and Peter knows how the misapplication and the misprioritization of outward beauty can damage people's hearts, damage their lives, and can offend God in ways that, that are spectacular. And he loves these people and he loves us. And so he, he wants us to really hear this. And so 
Here's where I want to start here. I, I'm actually going to define these, these verses a little bit through the negative. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the two primary ways that these me- verses are, are misunderstood and mistaught. And in that way, we are going to be able to gather what these verses really mean. So here's the first way that this, these verses are misunderstood. Women are not supposed to look nice. Women are never allowed to make themselves outwardly attractive. In fact, women are supposed to find a barrel that covers them from their nose to their ankles and wear that barrel for the rest of their life. They can't even take it off to take a shower. They don't get a second barrel. They don't get an, a black barrel for evening wear and a, and a tan-colored barrel for day wear. They don't get that. They get one barrel, that's it. You've got to wear it the rest of your life and even sleep in it. Now, that's hyperbole, obviously, but I'm trying to make the point that that is a misunderstanding of this verse. Listen to what he writes. He says, do not let your adorning. That Greek word translated adorning literally means do not order your life around. Do not prioritize in your life. In other words, do not set up as an idol in your life the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. So what a lot of guys will do is they'll take these three things the hair, the jewelry, and the clothing, they'll take them literally and they'll go down this road, which I think is a problem because that's not Peter's point. If we take these as literal commands rather than examples of a bigger principle, these verses actually make little sense. Let me, let me do that for you. Think about it. Why the braiding of hair? Why does Peter pick the braiding of hair? Because apparently you can still brush it, fluff it, bun it, curl it, dye it, tip it, and tease it, but not braiding. What's the braiding thing? Okay, so obviously something else is going on here, right? How about the putting on of gold jewelry? Again, it's hard to argue that the wearing of jewelry is some kind of a sin. I mean, I mean, jewelry has been worn in that context, in their context, and down through history, and even today, for sinless reasons other than just to look hot. Could it simply be that the principle is not to use jewelry as your primary way to express beauty? How about the clothing? Really? Women can't wear clothing? If you take the Greek text word for word, literally, that's what it's saying. You're not supposed to put on clothes. And now I have the attention of all the guys in the room. This is some exciting biblical teaching we have here. This is the one that commentators such as Grudem and Clowney have the most fun with. Here's what Clowney says about this. If the literal force of Peter's warning in verse 3 is taken out of context... He could be made to say that the wearing of clothing is prohibited as outward adornment, period. The point is not a legalistic ban on beauty of attire. In fact, if we recall, the father of the prodigal welcomed his returning son with the best robe and the best ring. The point is the vastly superior value of inward beauty and the danger of extravagant and sensual fashions in dress. So here's what Peter's saying. If the reason for fixing your hair and putting on jewelry and perfume and, and, and provocative and sensual clothing is for the purpose of demonstrating where you think your real beauty is or for hiding the fact that you have no inner beauty or for some misguided ego trip, then yes, you are, mis- you are ill-advised to go down that road, ladies. But if not, you are certainly free to look nice. The point is not to ban fashion, but to exalt the vast superiority of the beauty that Christ has with you inside of you. Consider this. In the Old Testament, when outer beauty of a woman is spoken of, it's really rarely spoken of in negative terms. And in fact, very often, it's spoken of as a blessing for those that are around her. 
So that's the first misunderstanding of these two verses, is that women aren't ever to look nice. Here's the second misunderstanding, and it is just as problematic. Here it is. We can totally ignore the instruction in these verses because they were only important in the first century. Again, completely wrong. Uh, this, is, this is why people try to do this. It's, it's called, and this is a, a C.S. Lewis term, it's called chronological snobbery. Hey man, we live in the 21st century. You know, we're sophisticated and educated so we can handle a woman who only finds her beauty on the outside. In fact, we should celebrate that in our culture. Well, the sad fact is that's what we celebrate in our culture. We are constantly celebrating the outer beauty of women and giving absolutely no regard to the inner beauty that she has. And unfortunately, as a result, this comes at great expense. Most often, the result, after the outer beauty wears off, which it always does, the result is pain, regret, bitterness. And then you have to go down the road of pornography and eating disorders. This is tremendously destructive. And the reason is because all of us, by the way, men, if we weren't doing this too, if we were exalting this principle, maybe it wouldn't happen as much, but when we all do this, what we're doing is we are placing our faith, hope, and trust in something that is perishable rather than recognizing the imperishable inner beauty of the woman. And as Christians, as Christ followers, as the church, we need to be more about that. So I'm telling you, ladies, Peter writes this so that your hearts don't get stomped. He's telling you not to listen to culture. And again, I want, I want you to hear what Peter says about this inner and outer beauty thing insofar as what God thinks. He says in verse 4 that inner beauty is precious in God's sight. In fact, let me read you a passage out of the Bible, Isaiah chapter 3, that was written 2,800 years ago. And again, I've talked before about how in, in this book of 1 Peter, you can see Old Testament shadows throughout this entire book. And here is another one. It's Isaiah chapter 3. But I will tell you that even though this passage in Isaiah was written 2,800 years ago, it could have been written this morning. Here's what he says. So, Isaiah writes, the Lord said, so this is a word from God. He says, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion, all right, who are the daughters of Zion? It's the women of Israel. All the women of Israel. And here's what's going on. The problem was that an attitude of pride and arrogance had permeated their culture and the women's focus on their outer beauty was actually contributing to the coming judgment that was going to be placed on the nation. And the judgment did eventually come when the Assyrians came in. So he says, because the daughters of Zion, the women of Israel, are haughty. Now let me explain that word haughty. It's H-A-U-G-H-T-Y. It means pride and arrogance. It's not H-O-T-T-I-E. The haughties were haughty, okay? Because the hotties are haughty and they walk with outstretched necks. Literally, that means they walk with a lofty demeanor, glancing wantonly, mincing along as they go. Glancing wantonly literally means that they're in the public square uh, looking around with flirtatious eyes and then mincing along as they go. Literally, what this means is that they were walking like they were runway models. So they would suck in their cheeks. and flirt with guys with their eyes, okay? 
And then he says, so they're, they're haughty, outstretched necks, glancing wantonly, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. That's an interesting way of saying that. Literally, they adorn their ankles with bracelets designed to make tinkling noises so that men will look at them. Okay? So he says, because women are doing this, and by the way, this whole verse is in contradistinction of how God calls women to live with these characteristics, modesty, humility, and sobriety. He says, here's what I'm going to do about this offense, and it's not very pleasant. The first verse of the judgment is this. I will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion and lay bare their secret parts. Literally, he's going to make them go bald and then there's going to be a scab on their head from a disease and then he's going to lay bare their private parts. This is not very pleasant. And then he goes on for eight verses describing four ways in which this judgment is going to come on the entire nation. Number one, he's going to cause disease to befall them. Number two, he's going to turn their prosperity into poverty. Number three, he is going to turn their assets into liabilities. And then the last verse describes the fourth thing that's going to happen. He says, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men will fall in battle. So the fourth thing is that, that they will be carried away into captivity. And listen, men, this affects you too. You're going to fall in the battle. You're going to fall by the sword. And, and I know, I, I, when I've, I've reviewed this passage many times in the past with people, and, and it's like... It's like nobody reads the prophets anymore, it seems, which is sad. But when they hear this, they're amused and interested by it because our idea of what women were like 2,800 years ago is that they were completely unsophisticated and different than us. But what this passage shows is that women back then, 2,800 years ago, have exactly the same issues as women do today. Same with men. The only difference between the, the women then and the women today is that we have better technology to do it with today and we have reality shows. They had to have their reality shows in real time in, in the public square back then, okay? And, and I would even go so far as to say this. If we looked hard enough in the, in the Hebrew text, I guarantee you we would find the words Lancome Clinique and Estee Lauder in there. I'm just, I guarantee you that that would be in there. Listen, listen, listen. Again, God is not against outer beauty. The point, rather, is that inner beauty is vastly superior to outer beauty and Peter says it is pleasing to God. And the truth is, in the long run, inner beauty tends to win men. And not just men, it tends to win the type of men that women really want. And it does so more often and more convincingly than outer beauty. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, again, let me speak just as transparently as I can. Women, I know this is hard for you because this gets at how many of you, because of our culture, how many of you tend to perceive your self-worth. And one reason is hard, it is hard is because it is the culture that is just constantly pounding you with this message. You come here for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and the rest of the, the, rest of the week, it's the culture telling you something differently. And it's telling you that your value, your worth is in your outer beauty. But God sees your worth in your inner beauty. He says the inner person of the heart with which imperishable beauty, <clears throat> with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's where God finds your value. And the characteristics of God's hidden person based on numerous passages that we can cross-reference with this are modesty, discretion, wisdom, humility, gentleness, sobriety, and faithfulness. Proverbs 11.22 says this, 
Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Here's what Solomon says. He says, he says if, if you have a beautiful woman who doesn't even have discretion on her inside, has nothing going on on her inside, it's like taking a, a gold ring and sticking it on a pig's nose. That's what it is. This is how much God values the inner beauty. And Peter says this is how you are to adorn yourself. Again, adorning means what you order your life around, how you prioritize your life. Now, guys, your turn. Listen up. We must address the fact that this creates tension for us as well. And the tension is this. We are visual creatures. We like outer beauty. And we're created to like outer beauty. And we're wired to like outer beauty. And guess what? It's good and it's okay to enjoy that properly. Properly. The problem is, is that we often do, some would say always. My mom told me to never use the words never and always. So the problem is, is that what often happens with men is that we take the good thing of outer beauty and we make it the ultimate thing. We make it the most important thing. We make it the thing that drives all of our decisions. In other words, we make it an idol in our lives. And that's when it becomes a very bad thing. And the joy that we can have through enjoying the outer beauty becomes corrupted and actually becomes cursed in our lives. The outer beauty becomes the shiny object that we get distracted and bewitched by but it's not true beauty. So when we read these verses, men, and we should read these verses, we find that to be a godly man, we have to find the ultimate beauty of our wives in the hidden person of her heart. So there's our tension, guys. I will ask you, where is your adornment? How are you ordering your life? How are you prioritizing your life? Are you making the same mistake, many of us are, that the women in our culture are making? We've got to be about reversing that, both of us. And let me just push a little bit more on both of you, men and women. This is the gospel truth. Outer beauty always fades, spoils, and perishes. Inner beauty, however, is eternal. It never fades, spoils, or perishes. Outer beauty can be purchased. Cosmetics surgeries, accessories, but inner beauty was purchased for you at the cross of Christ. Outer beauty is often deceptive. It's one of the reasons why we have cosmetics, surgeries, and accessories. But inner beauty, it reveals the true heart of God. Finally, the standards for outer beauty are constantly changing, but the standards for inner beauty have never changed and they never will change. Let's wrap up with verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 are actually Peter's sermon illustration for these four verses. And then we'll give you a little bit of application as we, as we close down. Peter writes, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So who are these holy women that Peter's talking about in verse 5? Well, certainly the commentators say that Ruth has got to be one of them. If you go into the Old Testament and read the book of Ruth, you know that this was a woman who had this inner beauty. She was a woman of discernment and faithfulness and, and wisdom. 
And, and when Boaz came and, and, and was introduced to her, this was the primary thing that got him going. It's not that Ruth was not good looking on the outside. She was. But what really attracted Boaz to her, who was one of the most eligible bachelors in that town, was her inner beauty. The fact that she was a woman of loyalty, faithfulness, and, and discernment. And there are other women too, but the point is, is that Peter calls them holy women. And, and remember our definition of holy. Separate, different, consecrated. These, these women were different because the, the rest of their culture found their beauty in outer beauty, but these women, these holy women, found their beauty by the work of God in their lives, in their inner pe uh, person. And God calls us to be different in the same way today. And he offers us this example of Sarah. So how did Sarah obey Abraham? Well, most po people point to this fact. If you know the story of Abraham, it's from Genesis 12 to 25. It's a pretty big chunk of the book of, of Genesis and a really good chunk. And, and it starts off in, in Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham is living in a town known as Ur. Now, I like the name of that. If I ever lived in a town other than Phoenix, I'd want to live someplace called, where do you live, Frank? Ur. That just sounds cool to me. All right? I'd like to be able to do that at least for a year. Anyway, he lives in Ur, modern-day Iraq, eastern part. God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to go to the place where I will tell you. That's it. I'll just, you just start, start walking, and when you're done, when you're there, I'll tell you. Okay? And Abraham says, okay. So what's the deal with uh, with Sarah. Well, Sarah was married to Abraham at the time and she went with him. She didn't complain about it. She didn't question it. She just went. And God sends them on this 900-mile journey which ends up in the place that eventually Israel and Judah would be. And, and all Sarah did was she just went with it. She just submitted to him. But wait. But wait. I know some of you are looking there and you're going, but wait a minute, Frank. It also says that Abraham... Sarah called Abraham Lord. Frank, this ain't flying in Arcadia in the 21st century. Let me tell you that right now. Not calling the king of the couch Lord. That ain't going to happen. I got it. I got it. But that's not really the point. The point is that this word translated Lord simply means that she was showing him respect, deference, and an attitude of humility. L listen, read those chapters, 12 to 25 in Genesis. It's not that Sarah didn't have opinions. It's not that Sarah never expressed her opinions. In fact, I would argue that Sarah sometimes expressed her opinions in a very sarcastic, cynical, and yes, sometimes even a snarky way. But in the end, she recognized that she needed to subject herself to, to Abraham. She still had respect for Abraham. This is part of that inner person that is your source of godliness and beauty. Let me wrap up two quick points of application. First of all, in the context of this passage, what I'm about to say, we could say to just women, but you need to understand what I'm about to say applies to everyone. It's not just for women. So guys, you're not off the hook here. And here it is. I want you to hear this. Faith fights for trust, not rights. Faith fights for trust, not rights. That's hard in our culture because our culture tells us about, all about our rights, but never about our responsibilities. Our culture is all about humanism and what we can do and never what God can do in our life. And so when we have faith in Christ, we are called to trust, 
not to fight for rights. We are called to fight for trust. So our faith trusts God always. And so wives, in this context in particular, you need to understand, if you live by this passage, you're not trusting your husband. You are trusting God. Lastly, let me just say this. Again, I know the temptation with any passage like this is to look for the loophole, the exception, and the way around. But here's what happens when we try to find the exception, the loophole, and the way around. Rather than just living in the passage, what happens is we miss the blessing when God actually does work in our very difficult situation. God's promise is that eventually He's going to work in a difficult situation and you're going to see a blessing in that. Now obviously the exception is this. If your husband commands you to sin, you are not to sin. But we also need to understand that if your husband's a jerk, or if he's just annoying, or if he smells funny, or if he's not even obeying the Word of God, he is not specifically commanding you to sin, so the exception is rare. And I can guarantee you, if you find an exception where there isn't one, you will never reap the benefit of seeing God actually work in your life because you will have usurped God's authority in your life. And I've got examples. I've probably mentioned this couple before, but the reason I, I, I mention them a lot is because I knew them and, and the example in their life was just absolutely profound. It's Larry and Sue Wright. Sue is still alive. Larry passed away a little over 10 years ago. When those two got together, neither one of them were Christians and they got married. And, and Larry, by his own description, was a bad, bad, bad guy. Probably didn't say enough bads for Larry. He was a womanizer. He, he was a substance abuser, alcohol, whatever it was, anything. He was rebellious. He was angry and cantankerous. And Sue ended up coming to Christ after they got married. God saved her. And, and right out of the gate, of course, she came to Larry and said, hey, you need to know Jesus. This is, this is the answer to all of our problems and you need to know Jesus. And she went at him with the Gospel as she should. But there came a point where he started to retreat because of the, the constant verbal assault. And, and, and the Holy Spirit convicted Sue of the idea that what she needed to do now was just live as Christ in Larry's life. And it's interesting because uh, during the first part of that, it took two years, but during the first part of that, Larry actually got more agitated. It bothered him even more that she was living like this Jesus character. And so he went after her. He attacked her. And she just continued to be Jesus to him. Finally, after two years, he looked at her and he said, there is no way that any human being could love somebody like me like that. That Jesus in her must be real. And God saved him. And Larry became one of the most beloved and one of the best Bible teachers the state of Arizona has ever seen. And this state is littered with people that God used Larry in order to draw them unto Him. And here's what Sue said. Sue said, I ended up with a great husband not because I listened to culture, but because I listened to God. Just a couple weeks ago, I was with some friends and we were sitting around and, and um, uh, there was this... Uh, uh, couple that was there, and I didn't realize it, but one of the, one of the couples uh, had this, the, these parents who I know are good Christian people, but what I didn't know was the back story. The back story was that they weren't Christians when they got married. The wife came to Christ about five years into it, 
And she did the same thing. She went to her husband and said, you need to know Jesus. You need to know Jesus. And then finally, the Holy Spirit convicted her and said, okay, you need to pull that back and just live as Jesus in his life. This wasn't no two-year project. This was 19 years. But 19 years later, when he came to Christ, there was a tremendous celebration because of the blessing that happened there. God's stories take a long time sometimes, as we learn from the life of Joseph. A number of years ago, when I was at Paradise Valley Community Church, there was a couple there. Both of them were Christians, but the guy was running from Jesus. He was rebelling. And I mean rebelling in a big, big way. He wasn't just a little annoying. He was sinning big time. And they came in for counseling and discussions, and I spoke with her a number of times as well. I even talked to her about this idea that she just needed to, to submit to him and, and, and let God do his work. And she endured for five years. And finally, after five years, God woke this guy up. And, and, and his wife's conduct was used by God to wake him up. And I know this couple now, and their marriage has never been stronger. They've never been happier. There's never been more joy in their marriage than there is now. Anecdotal evidence all over the place for how God uses this. We have to remember, we can't do these things. We don't have the power to do it. It's only by the power of Christ in us that this can happen. And so we need to lean into Him and trust Him. Understand that He has the power. So wives, honor your husbands. Understand where your true beauty comes from. And then be patient and wait for the blessing. Let me pray and Sean will come and lead us. God, thank you that even though you challenge us, you do it because you love us. So I pray now that you would, you would help us to understand that the power lies in you, the power lies in your resurrected Son, and the power lies in the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so God, help us to lean into that. Help us to uh, embrace that, to take that captive in our lives so that we might follow you and be who you call us to be. Holy, consecrated, offering spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to you by the power of your resurrected Son in us. And it's in his name that we pray.